following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Our scripture reading this morning is found in Isaiah 35. If you would turn there, please, so that you may follow along as I read Isaiah and the 35th chapter. We're just past halfway through Isaiah's prophecy. We do believe, if you're wondering, that uh, Isaiah wrote the entire book. There are not two Isaiahs or three or four, I guess. I don't know how many there's supposed to be according to liberal theologians, but uh, there, is, there is one Isaiah, and uh, he wrote all of this under the inspired, inspiring work of the Spirit of God. Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. And they shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. And make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. What a powerful word. Verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. You know what the man who was born blind in John chapter 9 said? It has not been heard of since the beginning of the world that a man, Jesus, could open the eyes of the blind. But God can. Remember God told Moses, he said, who had made man's mouth? Who made the seeing or the deaf or the blind? God did. And so this, when, when the Lord Jesus came on the scene and started healing people of deafness and blindness and all of that, that that had to cause these people who saw him to hearken back to this passage of Scripture. Here is the coming king. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will sing. Here's your homework. Go to the Gospels and find an example of each one of those from our Lord Jesus. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. So in this kingdom time that's coming, in the future glory of Zion, the kingdom, you're going to have physical healing. You're going to have nature be healed. You see that in the verses we just read, streams in the desert, uh, drought will no longer be. Verse 8, now we're going to have a national restoration. A highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, 
with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Oh, how we look forward to that time when the Lord returns. Isaiah 35. May God bless that reading of his word. We're going to be back in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. And this time we will be in uh, verses 24 through 28, picking up where we left off last Sunday morning. I jumped ahead in our Sunday school hour and uh, spoke about the resurrection part 6, but now we're going to deal with part 5 in 1 Corinthians 15 and picking right up immediately from where we left off last time at verse 24. In fact, we began to study in verse 24, but we have to start there again. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. I'll start in verse 20, actually, if you follow along as I read. The Bible says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in all... By the way, a lot of people read that today, for since by evolution came death. No thanks. I'll take the Bible over that scientific speculation any day. Verse uh, 22, for as in Adam all die. That's a very well-established principle. We should be able to agree to that. Every cemetery is proof. Even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. There's the teaching that Christ will call forth those from the grave, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting condemnation. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ that is coming, then comes the end. We stopped pretty much there last time because we were addressing last time the order of the resurrections. There are many Christians who teach what I call a generic eschatology, and that is that, well, Jesus is going to come back, we're all going to be raised at what they call a general resurrection. I remember being at a funeral one time for a brother, and uh, the the minister that they, I'll say, dredged up for this funeral, uh, very explicitly at the funeral and at the graveside was, was teaching this doctrine of the general resurrection. Like, if you don't believe in the general resurrection, you're a heretic. But the Bible is super clear. In Revelation 20, for instance, you have one resurrection, a thousand years, and the rest of the dead did not live until the thousand years are over. It can't be more clear. But the general resurrection teaching is Jesus comes, everybody's raised, stands before him, and you kind of find out if you're, if you're in or if you're out. It's a very dreadful kind of situation. It's, it's you know, like every other religion in the world. You die and then you kind of find out you know, are you good or are you not good? The blessed teaching of the Christian faith is that you can know today if you are right with God through Jesus Christ. You don't have to wait like some kind of roll of the dice, you know, and to figure out if you're, if you're going to go to heaven or not, or wait to see the, you know, the, 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 the blind justice statue with the with the scales and whether your good is going to outweigh your bad and you're like, you know, on the edge of your seat biting your fingernails to find out if the good outweighs the bad. That's never going to work that way. The bad always outweighs the good. The Bible is very clear about that as well. And so these ideas are important for us to really to really grasp a hold of. So 
uh, we have resurrections in their own order. First, Christ. He's the first fruits. Then, those who are Christ at his coming. So Christ is going to return, and there's going to be what's called the rapture, which is attached to a resurrection. Christians are going to rise from the dead. Those that remain, like if it happened right now, everybody who died Christian in a, as a Christian would be raised from the dead. We'd be caught up into the clouds with the Lord. The whole church together goes up and is with the Lord. That's part of the Lord's return. Now, the Lord is going to do more than just that. He's going to judge the earth, the tribulation. He's going to come down and establish his kingdom. That's all part of his return. Okay, The Lord's coming. That's all connected together. And then, it says, comes the end. When is that? Well, that's the last resurrection, the one that is in Revelation 20 after the thousand years, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Thank the Lord. Verse 27, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Okay, there's an exception case. The boss, God the Father, is accepted from being put under him in all of those things. And verse 28, now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. <clears throat> so Paul goes on to say that more events will happen at the time of the end when the kingdom comes to a close. Okay, so when's this resurrection going to happen? This last resurrection, which, by the way, is that of unbelieving people, uh, and they will face the judgment of God at the great white throne, it says in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Just know that it is there, clearly written out. So then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. So what are, what's going to happen at the end of the kingdom? Number one. So let me back up for a second. Remember, rapture, tribulation, kingdom, and then this stuff that we're talking about here. Okay, That's the basic timeline. What is going to happen? Well, first of all, Christ will deliver up the kingdom to God. And we're going to kind of circle back Start here and, and circle back to this idea. Paul doesn't kind of lay things out in a specifically chronological order. He speaks of it, gives some detail, then comes back to it again. So bear with me as we try to work, work through these verses in order, but we circle around back to the topics at the beginning of the verses. So it says, Christ will deliver up the kingdom to God. The Bible tells us that God gives Christ all authority, Right? Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven, in heaven and on earth. And it says in Daniel chapter 7 that God is going to deliver him a kingdom. Daniel 7, the, the son of man is going to come to the ancient of days and he's going to receive a kingdom. And that's kind of like that parable. Remember the parable where the, the nobleman goes to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return? Of course, the citizens didn't all want him to be the king, so they sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to be king over us. Well, that parable is teaching this, that Jesus, first coming, he goes away for a long while. He's going to receive the investiture to reign in the kingdom, and he's going to come back, and he's going to do that. He will rule that kingdom with 
your assistance if you're a Christian person and mine. I don't know exactly how that will look, but it will be just fine. Everything will be good. Whatever position you have, whatever assignment you have, it will be just exactly what the Lord has designed you for and you will serve. So when that that happens, the original mandate given to humanity will be fulfilled. What was that mandate? Remember that? Way back in Genesis, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it, over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, every beast, all the cattle, the whole earth. Your, your stewardship is assigned, Adam and Eve, they failed. Christ will come and will, will lead redeemed humanity to make sure that that dominion mandate, that mandate from the beginning is fulfilled and there will be a flourishing of society, of human government, of agriculture, of every aspect of of human life on the earth during the kingdom. And we will be privileged to see that and participate in it. Stewardship will be the best that it could ever be. The use of the environment will be the best that it could ever be. Um, The government will be the best. Sin will be maximally constrained and God will be worshipped as much as humanly possible. While there's still sin present on the earth, that, that will be the case. At this point, so it's almost like you want to stop there and just kind of picture in your mind what, that, what does that look like. Life is as ideal as it can be in every possible way in this kingdom. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the mute will speak, there'll be healing everywhere, there will be a, a human health and flourishing, and there won't be oppression and oppressed, famine and poverty will be largely, perhaps not entirely erased, but largely so, and the circumstances will be ideal. All of those things that the utopian people want today will be in place, not because of their social programs, but because of Christ Jesus and his arrangement of things. Now, at this point, at the end of this kingdom, at the designated hour, Christ's kingdom to the Father is an act of selfish submission and devotion to the will of God. Christ will be King of kings and Lord of lords. He will package up this kingdom, and he will give it to God. He will return it to him, you know, saying, in a sense, you gave this to me, I'm returning it to you, I have managed it perfectly, we have had dominion over the earth and its creatures and the nations and are readying it for your glory and enjoyment. I have led humankind as you have asked me to do, the Son to the Father. And he hands it over to God as a Christmas present, if you will. Here it is, what you have given to me. You see that Daniel 7, the Father gives him the kingdom. He delegates to him the kingdoms of the earth and says they are yours. Lead them, rule them. Manage them. And then after a thousand years, the Lord comes back to the Ancient of Days and hands it to him and says, we've done it. We have done what you asked. We have done what you asked. There are hardly any better words when the Lord says, do X, and you say, I will do it, and then you do it. Yeah, we can do that today too. God has commanded us to be obedient to him. Now then, Christ also will put an end to all rule and authority and power. This rejoices my heart, my friends, when we think of the world situation in which we live. How sometimes I think, boy, it would be so nice if I could just be 
come the president of Venezuela or North Korea or Cuba or China or and rule it the way that God wants it to be ruled. I'm not no visions of grandeur, friends. I'm just saying in this in this model of the kingdom, when things are ruled righteously, when people are not oppressed, when human rights are at their maximum, at their zenith, at their best point ever, when yes, families are flourishing, they're having kids left and right and populating the earth instead of aborting them and sex-selective abortion and all of these things. You know, those things have consequences. You know that? Nations that do sex-selective abortions, they want to get rid of girls. And they have generations of boys who can find no wives. There has to be a negative consequence to that somewhere, doesn't there? It's pretty obvious if you just think beyond, you know, your one move on the checkers board here. Yeah, it's craziness. Christ will put an end to all of that nonsense. Do you read that in the Bible? He says he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. Anything that is in opposition to God will be wiped out. All those nations that rage in Psalm 2, they will be put into their place. The governments that are wicked and evil will be corrected because they will be ruled by people who are followers of God and, and redeemed Bodies, Christians raised from the dead, delegated to those assignments by our God. The result of his work is the smashing of all other kingdoms and sweeping them away like a heavy wind blows away the chaff. That's what Daniel, by the way, also says when he talks about the mountain cut out without hands or the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. It comes and it grows into a huge mountain and it fills the earth and it smashes all the other kingdoms and they're blown away like chaff. That's a figure of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. There will be no competition to his rule. See, as Christians, we rejoice in this because it gives us hope that the awful circumstances in which many in the world find themselves today will not continue forever. We will have... Uh, a righteous government in the end. So be patient until then, friends. We know that it's not going to be now. There's, there are people who are in power and they want money and they want more power and they want to control your lives and, and all of that because they're smarter than you and, and everything. There will be a time when that won't be the case, but we have to be patient until then. In fact, our mission is not to correct the government today. Our mission is to gather as many citizens for the future kingdom as we can through preaching of the gospel so that there will be a whole bunch more people praising God and living and serving him during the kingdom than what there otherwise would be if we didn't exercise our command to be evangelistic Christians. We know about God. He's going to, do, uh, he's going to see to it that everyone who needs to be saved is saved. But we have a participation role in that. All right, three, Christ, verse 25, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Why, does this, why is this going to happen this way? It has to happen this way. The word must is an important word here in verse 25. He must, it is necessary for him to reign this way. Otherwise, the scripture would be broken. 
God's word, his promises would not be kept, but no, he must do this. It's necessary for scripture to be fulfilled and that the plan of God be completed, that every single enemy of God be put down. The nations are raging against God now. Cast their cords from us. We would not have this man to rule over us, but they will be restrained from their raging. Sin will be constrained. And even look at verse 26, another enemy will be destroyed, and that is the enemy of death. That Later on in this chapter, we'll see death being taunted. We see that in Isaiah's prophecy as well later on in our reading. Christ will reign. That thing, that death which is served to bind humanity, Hebrews 2.14 says the world lives under the fear of death. And if they don't know Christ, then they remain in that fear. Sad testimony, isn't it? Death is not the end for the believer. Death is, in effect, the end for the unbeliever because the next thing, the next stop for them is Hades and ultimately the lake of fire to be punished for sin, but not for the believer. We have hope because life will go on in a new and better form. But, but death has been subdued. Death has been subjugated. Christ proved it. He came, he died, he subjected himself to death, and then he conquered death you know, over, came over it, so that we know that death can, in fact, be conquered. Longevity will be increased in the kingdom, and eventually death will be swallowed up entirely. Now, there's somewhat of a technical issue here, and I don't want to lose you with this, but just hang with me for a moment. There's a question here as to what this verse, how this verse is connected. This is 25, how this is connected to Psalm 110. And let me give my answer to that here just in the next few moments. In, uh, maybe you want to turn your Bible to Psalm 110. I have it listed in the, or written out here in the notes as well. But it opens this way. It says uh, in verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You can almost feel the, um, the tension when the Lord Jesus asked the Pharisees, What does this verse mean? And of course, the Lord knows well what it means. It means that David is saying, God said to my Lord, David's down here, of course. God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. How can David call him Lord if he's his son? It's a real paradox, a real conundrum for them to think about. Well, we know how that's true because Jesus is the son of David, but he's also the Lord of David. And so that's where this verse is used in, in Matthew. In fact, this is one of the most commonly quoted verses in the New Testament, um, very important for us to be familiar with it. But the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So who is doing this, the, um, the talking here? Well, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, God the Father, said to my Lord, it's a reference to the Messiah. He's, so the Father's doing the talking. The Lord is doing the listening, the Lord Jesus Sit at my right hand. What is the Lord supposed to do under the direction of the Father? Sit. How long? Or well, where first? At my right hand. How long 
do you sit? Till I make your enemies your footstool. Who makes the enemies the footstool in this verse? God the Father, right? Sit, I'll make your enemies your footstool, then other stuff will happen, okay? Clearly, God's going to subjugate Christ's enemies at some level and then install Christ as king. And this is Psalm 2. You know, I have installed my king in my holy hill of Zion. The Lord has declared the decree, you are my son, today I have begotten thee. In other words, you've become the king. Now, there are two main views about how this verse in Psalm 110 is connected to this one. And the reason why the connection question comes up is because if you read, uh, you see the common phrase, all enemies under the feet. And so you think, well, it must be a quotation of Psalm 110, because that also talks about enemies being put under the feet. I think that's a little oversimplified. And here's why. Remember what we said, who does the talking, who does the submitting, uh, or the subjecting, rather, in Psalm 110? Well, God the Father. The Son sits, I will make your enemies your footstool. But here, look at verse 25, speaking of the, the Son who delivers the kingdom to the Father, it is he who must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. So there's something going on here. Got to ferret out, kind of tease out of it. So there are two views as to what this connection is. Number one is that when the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, what he means is sit here and reign with me. Sit here and reign with me. It refers then to Christ's present reign from heaven. I don't take this view. I'm just telling it to you because that's a common view, all right? It refers to Christ's present reign from heaven. The making of the enemies into a footstool has already happened, and this is roughly equivalent to the amillennial view. But this doesn't seem to make sense to me. How can Christ reign while he's sitting if his enemies are not yet subjugated under his feet. Now, you might say, well, that, that sounds kind of confused, Pastor. Well, I'm not confused about it, but I'm saying just look around. Look around. Are Christ's enemies under his feet right now, today? In North Korea, China, Russia, Cuba, Venezuela, United States of America? You know, is everybody doing homage to Christ? Is the devil really bound in the abyss? Give me a break. That's foolishness, okay? It doesn't make any sense. The second view is not that sit equals reign, that's the first view, or rule, but rather sit is equivalent to wait. Sit here and wait son, until I make your enemies your footstool. Then we'll go on from there. Now, where do I get that from? Turn to Hebrews 10.13. Hebrews 10.13. This verse seals the deal for me that this is the correct interpretation of this section of Scripture. Hebrews 10.13. Hebrews 10, verse 13. And I'll start uh, reading at verse 11. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Notice that, please. Nothing that you can do can take away your sins. No amount of sacrifices, nothing. Only Christ's sacrifice 
says that after, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, thus showing that his work was complete. Sat down. He's not standing ministering daily. What is he doing there? Sat down at the right hand of God. What's he doing there? From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. He's not reigning. Now, please, I know that there are some who say, what do you mean he's not reigning? You mean the world is totally out of control and God is nowhere to be found? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that he's not reigning, not ruling in the millennial kingdom right now. I'm under, and I hope you are under no illusions that Christ is reigning as it shows us in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, not even close, okay? We have eyes. We can see that it's not happening today, okay? That's what I mean. That's what I mean is when, when Matthew 6 tells us to pray that God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom would come, we're still praying that, aren't we? We're still waiting for it to come. It's not here now. Because Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, waiting until the enemies are made his footstool. And you know how God's going to do that? The tribulation. God will, no thanks to these world powers, will smash them into submission. Because they will not, they will not humbly accept his authority. You know, I, I, you know these folks are arrogant but they shall suddenly be broken. And so the second view of this is not that sitting is Christ reigning over his kingdom in some kind of, or he's reigning in heaven and it's kind of hidden and we can't see it. No, it's not happening. He's waiting, waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. So I'm completely convinced that sitting is waiting, not reigning right now. And the making of the enemies into a footstool will happen in the future by God the Father and then my, my proposal is that once Christ is installed as king, the enemies have been subjected to a, 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 a sufficient level that Christ can reign. Everything's under control. And then he will keep that kingdom in subjection for a thousand years. That's going to be no small task. You know why? Because every year, more thousands and millions of more sinners are going to be born into this coming kingdom. People are going to be having babies, and some of those kids are going to grow up to be rebels against God, proven by the fact that at the end, Satan, when he's released, is going to find a whole bunch of people clamoring to throw off Christ's rule from them and get rid of him out of Jerusalem. What hubris, what arrogance. And so there are going to be people. So what Christ is going to have to do is he's going to have to keep that kingdom in subjection for a thousand years. So God's going to subject the enemies to Christ, install him as king, and say, okay, it's all yours. Keep it under control, so to speak. Keep everything motoring along like it should. And he will do that. And he will also ultimately destroy the final enemy, which is death. You know, it's hard to imagine, but it's going to happen as the as final test of humanity that uh, Christ will be reigning, the saints will be ruling with him, the circumstances will be ideal, and people still won't get it. They will still rebel against God. Why? Because they want their sinful pleasures. You know, it's, it's, and, and don't tell me that's unrealistic to think. Look, it's already happened once. 
God put Adam and Eve in an ideal garden with everything that they could ever possibly want, with love between them, with every food available, with all the creation under their feet, and they rebelled against God. And they didn't have a sin nature to begin with. Now the people in the kingdom who are born are going to have a sin nature to begin with because everyone who is born now is a sinner by nature and by personal choice. And so there's going to be problems that will have to be dealt with. And we see that in Isaiah and other passages in the the Bible. There are uh, ways in which the kingdom will be ruled. There will be penalties for people who walk out of line, who, who rebel against the king, and so on. Now, there will be one final rebellion. We've mentioned that from Revelation. But that will be quickly smashed, and everything will be returned to order, and Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire, and likewise all those who follow him. So kind of circling back now, the order of the verses kind of helps us understand the flow of events. Verse 24 says, again, then comes the end, he delivers the kingdom to the Father. When the power structures of the world and heaven are completely undone, verse 25 explains why all of this, because he has to reign until every enemy is subdued. Christ first waits until the Father subdues the enemies to the footstool level, and then he reigns in the millennium until the enemies are entirely dismantled and remain under his feet. So Christ reigns until he has put all the enemies under his feet. Psalm 110 speaks of a prior event of the Father subjecting the enemies under his feet. I guess the confusing thing is really that God and Christ is God, right? So when we get all turned around in our minds because of the Trinity, who's doing what here? But I think this is, we have to remember that Christ is God, but he's also fully what? Man. And he's going to reign on the earth in the place of Adam as a man. So we keep that in mind. And then what Christ is going to do is take what is subjugated to himself and deliver it to God the Father. Verse 28, now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him. This is in his humanity now. To him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So Paul quotes from a well-known passage that uh, he says, um, well, actually go back to verse 27. He has put all things under his feet. There's a, a quotation from another psalm, verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 6, Psalm 8, 6. And here we are talking about all things being put under Christ's feet, all things being put under uh, mankind's feet, not just enemies, but everything, okay, nature, everything that you can think of in the creation. Christ as the perfect man will represent all humanity before God, and he has the privilege of having everything under his authority during this kingdom time. But there's also a responsibility tied to that privilege and that responsibility, Adam failed, but God, through a Christ rather, will, through God, will succeed and do that same job that Adam could not do. He will do it in the same realm on this earth. He will do it in the same, with the same nature as a human, but he will do it successfully. So we will not have to endure a world that is forever ruled by God's enemies. Today that is the case. And so I present that to you as, in one way, an application today. 
hang on to this truth that there is a kingdom coming in which Christ will rule, you will reign with him somehow. And that gives you hope to continue in this life. And also it kind of dis, it disentangles you from this life some. Why, why, why do you worry so much about the, the political rage of the day when all that's going to be smashed? You kind of uh, think of yourself not in a superior way, but kind of as bubbling to the top and saying, this stuff is just beneath us because it's wickedness. We don't live down there in that gutter. We live up here in the heavenlies in a sense. We know what's going to occur. We know what role we're going to have. We don't have to be all worried that, you know, uh, they're going to close all the churches or, or uh, you know, the vaccine is going to kill us all or, or stuff like that. Don't fear. We have something far beyond what these folks are focusing upon. All will be well, and we don't have to to worry. A lot of us are given to worry, aren't we? We read the news headlines, and it fuels that worry. We have to always have something to worry about, don't we? Yeah, turn it off. Go do something else. You know, evangelize somebody. If nothing else, go do a hobby that's pleasant. You know, don't don't listen to the news as your hobby. Oh, it will destroy your soul. You know, it just will eat you up from the inside out. Um, Focus on good things. Focus on God's gifts and all the kindness that he has displayed to us. Now, obviously, when all things are subjected to Christ, that doesn't mean God the Father. Okay, he's sitting up there, you could say, in heaven, delegating all of this to the Son, and the Son takes care of everything, and, and all is subjected unto the Son, but of course the Father is not. What we mean by all things here is all created things. And, and do have that in mind, by the way, when, when uh, somebody kind of criticizes your Christian faith by saying, well, uh, you know, where did God come from? You know, every, every uh, cause, every effect has to have a cause if God's an effect. Well, no, he's not that way. God is eternally existent, no beginning, no ending, but he, he's not created. He's, he belongs to an entirely different class of things. And so when science, for example, says we're going to look at the natural world, my brother was talking to me about this. Where are you, brother? Right over here. When, the, when scientists say, I'm looking, you know, we're looking at the natural world, guess what they just left out? The supernatural world. They left out everything that's outside of nature, which is God and Christ and the angels and heaven and hell and all of that stuff. They've just left that out. And then they say, but we're scientists and we know that God doesn't exist. No, you, you, don't even, you can't even talk about that realm. You, you isolated yourself from that realm by saying that science deals with nature. Okay, there are two kinds of things in the world, only two, uncreated and created. God is in this category by himself, the triune God, and everything else is created. That's it. By the way, angels are not eternally existent in the past. God created angels. God created the angels. Some of them fell, became demons. God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing before there was Nothing, anything. Only thing that existed in eternity past was God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he decided at some point, 
How does that work? I have no idea. <laughs> Boggles your mind to create the angels and the heavens and the earth and to fill them and all, all that's in them in six days, he did. So that's what we have, created things and uncreated things. So we circle back then from verse 28 back to verse 20, the topic of verse 24, and uh, everything's made subject to, to him. The Son also will be subject to God the Father who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. I'll let you read through those uh, notes at the bottom of page 3 and 4. just covers what we talked about. Picture it like this. The emperor in Roman times, great example, sat on top of everything. Okay? He was the ruler of all. He'd send out a general, say General Titus or some other you know, high-ranking general, and that general would go and conquer a land. And what would the general do? Once he conquered, he would bring back some of the spoils, bring back some of the prisoners, you know, bring back a map of all the territory that he gained, and he would go in, in a triumphant procession to the monarch, to the emperor, and he would say, here it is. The emperor is like a picture of God the Father, the general, the picture of God the Son, who comes and he delivers everything up to the emperor and says, it's all yours. It's, so the emperor... The, 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 the general is submitting himself under the emperor, willingly and voluntarily. Of course, now in this life, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes the general kills the emperor, and he becomes the emperor, and then they just repeat the cycle again. Um, but that's how it looks in this, in this passage. Now, we end with the glory of God, and I spend a couple of pages dealing with this issue. The whole passage has been moving toward this crescendo. The resurrection of Christ was first, the resurrection of believers, the resurrection of the rest of the dead, the kingdom, all of the glory of that. Even the stubborn enemy of death is defeated. Everything is put in order. Corruption is eliminated. Idolatry is gone. Politics and religion are purified. Uh, the the, the present-day utopian desires of the world will be met, will be realized, but not due to their social programs, as we said, or socialism, but rather because of Jesus. And the climax is this, in order that God may be all in all. This is the grand purpose and aim, goal of history that Paul has been explaining. In fact, the entire purpose of the creation order and the program of God in history He's been guiding it to this end. So what does it mean that God may be all in all or all among all? We learn by simply looking back at the entire context of this ordered program, everything led up to this point. The, well, uh, the climax is that Christ will hand over the well-ordered kingdom to the Father and also will bow to the Father in humble submission as a man. Remember, Christ the man. He will have fulfilled the role as the last Adam, the man who did perfectly everything God wished to be done. In his perfect humanity, he will demonstrate proper obeisance to the creator of the universe. And now remember, in Philippians 2, we have a picture there that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will happen. And then... All attention will swing to God the Father, and he will receive everything that he is due among all of creation. 
He will be all among all. He will be all in all. He will be at the top of the stack among everything. All things, all creation, all humanity will recognize God for who he really is and will give him the honor that he is truly due. That's what it means that God will be all in all. Now, when we say that the goal of of world history, the goal of theology, the goal of, of redemption is the glory of God. This is what we're talking about. We believe that. It's the glory of God. Now, how does he achieve that glory? That's a whole big matter. We're, we're, I've been teaching you that the means by which God gets that glory is the world program up to now, the church, uh, evangelism, the resurrection of Christ, the first fruits, the resurrection of believers, the resurrection of those who are unbelievers, That whole program, the tribulation, the subsequent millennial kingdom, all of that is what leads to the glory of God. That's how he has exercised the world program to achieve that that plan of glory. And immediately some smart person is going to say, well, how does does God want to get all this glory? Why? Why? Why all this glory for himself? Is he some kind of egotistical maniac? who's got to have everybody looking at him and giving him attention like some child? I give a, an answer to that question here at some length, but let me just boil it down and you can read the details. I, 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 I call this concept the concept of a triune self-reflecting glory, that when, when God receives glory, He reflects it and distributes it among the members of the Trinity in a way that is humble, perfectly legitimate, holy, and is not any kind of exhibition of selfishness or desire for self-attention. He exhibits a common grace in which he shares many blessings with his creation as undeserving as we are of those things, all that is, is done to glorify him show, is not showing that he's self-absorbed. Rather, all the things that he's done for us shows that he's not self-absorbed. I mean, after all, he gave of himself his son to die. There's naturally going to accrue to him some glory when that son is elevated and when the Death is overcome by resurrection and so on. So he reflects, when God receives glory, he reflects that to Christ and he reflects it to the Holy Spirit who have done the work of redemption. And Christ and the Spirit in turn reflect that glory to God the Father. The Son and the Spirit reflect it toward the Father who, as Paul says, is all among all because God planned and created and sustains and guides all things to his intended purpose. It is this God whom we as Christians worship, the God we serve. He's the God who saves, the God who sanctifies. He is the one true and living God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is holy and true and just and loving and infinite and good and omnipotent and all-knowing and everywhere present. It is he who has deigned to raise sinners to the place of saints. And it's our call this morning to worship him truly by his spirit, that he may be glorified as he deserves. May he get all the glory among all the people in this church and throughout 
the world. So we behold God. He's everything. He's all in all. He raised up Jesus from the dead. He's going to raise up Christians as well from the dead. Christ will establish his reign openly on the earth. He's sitting waiting right now, but he's going to reign openly on the earth in a society under the righteous rule of his people. And all of this will be given back to God from whom it came, that God might have all of the glory among all of the creation. That's all in all. This is somewhat of an answer to the world's problems today, as I've alluded to before. No social improvement programs will accomplish the utopia that people desire. No tax increases will do it. No laws will do it. No filling or emptying of the jails will do it. No war against poverty will do it. No population control, no climate control. Only God, through Jesus Christ, will bring about this kind of world improvement to the glory of God the Father. Father in heaven, we pray that more and more of the world will see and hear of this program and rejoice that it's coming and we'll do, that we will do what we can to participate responsibly, meanwhile, in society, yes, and do what we can to encourage righteousness and holiness, and especially to encourage the proclamation of the gospel of Christ so that more people can come into a proper relationship with you and your son, the king, so that they'll be ready when he comes. Lord, help us not to be deceived Lord, but to know that unless a man is cleansed from his sin and has the Spirit indwelling, he will not see the kingdom of God in any good way. And so I pray that each one here and those listening and those who listen afterwards will consider this matter, that one must be born from above, born again, to see the kingdom of God and to be rightly related to the King. It's the only reasonable response when one sees that the king is going to come back. Obviously, we must be rightly related to him. Help us to be that way. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.